Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. And for some reason, no, I do have a ufological rant, I think. Uh, I just noticed yesterday some pictures being put up on the internet said proving that Roswell was real. It was a real crash. Uh, I looked at those pictures back in January. They're from the crash of an A-12, which I think is a forerunner to the SR-71. The pictures were taken in 1963. They're on the National Geographic website for those who want to look. Um, and it details exactly what it was. It, the pictures were taken in Utah and uh, has absolutely nothing to do with Roswell. The, the point is, the pictures had been classified for a long point time because the SR-71, the, the A-12 was a classified project, but they were declassified in 2011. So you read on the website, they were just recently declassified. Well, yeah, like 12 years ago. And that uh, it's a, a super, super plane. I think the SR-71 is an amazing bit of 50s technology that is uh, unbelievable that it came out of that era. But anyway, for those of you who may run across those pictures, uh, they're up on my up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and you can take a look at them and see exactly what I'm talking about. I'm joined now by Terry Loveless, who is the author of the book Incident at Devil's Den. I believe that's the correct title. It is. And he sent me a very nice biography, and I don't have it in front of me. So Terry. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's let's go that sure. way. It's easy. Um, I uh, graduated from high school in St. Louis, Missouri, in 1973, and enlisted in the Air Force, where I served as an enlisted guy for six years. I was a medic at EMT. Uh, finished my enlistment, uh, got an undergraduate degree in psychology, then went to law school at Western Michigan. Uh, practiced law in Michigan for a while, got an appointment to American Samoa as an assistant attorney general down there, uh, which was a great job, a beautiful place, uh, wonderful people. And finished up there and I went to the uh, state of Vermont and I retired uh, in 2012 and moved to Dallas where we have adult children. My incident happened, my incident at Devil's Den happened in June of 1977. Well, let me interrupt here quickly, because the question I have for you, did you have an interest in UFOs prior to your incident? I did as a kid, you know, uh, on and off through about age 11. And uh, then after that, I had an 11-year hiatus with almost nothing. And then uh, had the event down at, uh, it wasn't on the base, it was down at Devil's Den State Park, about a six-hour drive south from Whiteman. What, uh, what sparked your interest as a kid? What sparked my interest as a kid? 
when you said you had an interest when you were a kid. So I, I wonder what sparked your interest in UFOs as a kid. Oh, uh, not so much an interest. I had an event. Oh. I had uh, uh, beings in my room when I was a little kid, you know, age four. And then uh, in, in spurts uh, throughout age nine, and then uh, very rarely after that, through ages 10 and 11. And then, so, and then your interest kind of waned for a period? Yeah, you know what? I thought it, was, um, thought it was over. Maybe I grew out of it. Maybe they just lost interest in me, uh, which made me kind of sad. But uh, <laughs> um, So then, then you joined the Air Force, my Air Force, that we don't really think of as an armed service. <laughs> Everybody's always making fun of the Air Force. Uh, and uh, during your military service, you had the incident at Devil's Den off base. Uh, and that's kind of where I interrupted you. So let, give us a little background on that. Yeah, sure. I have a friend of mine that I worked with, a good friend. His name was Toby, Tobias. And uh, he came up. We worked the night shift in the ER, uh, 11 p.m. to 8 and he came up to me about two o'clock one morning and said, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camp. And, and I knew he grew up in Flint. I suspected he'd never been camping in his life. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I had never been camping in my life. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what spurned this interest? And uh, he's like, oh, this is a great place. Now, you know, bear in mind back then, uh, mostly as it still is today, Wyman Air Force Base was in the middle of nowhere. And we had all these beautiful state parks all around us. Well, let me, let me interrupt here because you were at Whiteman Air Force Base. Yes. Which I believe the 509th is now stationed there. Uh, yes, they sure the five, are. And the reason I bring that up, folks, is the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell, New Mexico. This is the unit that, that had the crash saucer. They went to, I think, New Hampshire for a while, and they ended up at Whiteman Air Force Base. So you were at Whiteman Air Force Base. Yeah, where the B-2s are right now. Pardon me? Where the B-2, the yes. B-2s are. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm trying to interrupt, but when you said that, I, I had to bring that out. So you were stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base. You're going camping and you're heading out to Devil's Den in Missouri. Yeah. So it's in the northwest corner of Arkansas, just across the Arkansas border. So just south of Missouri. And uh, my friend's interest was the night sky. He was an amateur astronomer. Uh, my interest was photography. I wanted to photograph some wildlife. So we didn't stay in a campground because the light pollution would kind of mess up his. And besides, we wanted to be real, real outdoorsmen, right? So we, <laughs> we snuck, kind of snuck past a chain across the road with a sternly worded keep out, do not enter sign and drove into the park and found an elevated plateau that we could drive up to. And then it was like a meadow on top. And it was gorgeous, great place to camp. And we set up a, a tent, made a little fire, uh, blew up some inflatable air mattresses. You know, we did all the fun stuff you do when you camp, and it was all it was all new to us. So yeah, we we had a great time. And the, uh, about nine o'clock that evening, we're sitting around the campfire, and this sounds really cliche, I know, but uh, it went dead quiet. I mean, the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff in the forest that makes noises at night. Well, was was loud enough to interfere with our conversation, and then suddenly, it's it's dead quiet. And not only did it go dead quiet, but it was still because we'd had a breeze going, and uh, it was June. It was hot, and uh, the breeze died. So uh, that spooked me, but didn't rattle my friend at all. And he asked me a few minutes later. He says, "You know, hey Terry, were those lights there before?" And I'm like. What are you talking about? But he was looking at whites on the Western horizon. I couldn't see them because we we're both laying on these air mattresses and his torso was in the way. I stood up and there were three tiny little stars uh, right on the Western horizon, too far above the horizon to have been lights from a, a shopping center or a train or something. Um, and low enough, we thought it, we didn't, couldn't think of any kind of aircraft that had that kind of light configuration. And while we're watching, they rotated like they were on an axis and then climbed up into the air and reached what I call a ceiling. I don't have no idea what that was, 
uh, and then started like a glide plane down toward us. And the thing that we saw was a, was a perfect triangle. So we saw there were, there were lights on each point of the triangle. So we, we saw three lights headed in our direction. I mean, it was obvious the way it was pointed, it was headed toward us because the apex was right at us. And it cruised in about uh, 5,000 feet. And you know, the, the crazy thing is, um, when this thing started to go up in the air, I had this feeling of calm, like almost sedation. Um, maybe even mild disinterest wash over me. And, you know, two people witness something that's this unusual should be, you know, man, you see what I'm seeing, you know, validating each other's observation. Um, and there, there was none of that. Uh, we were just, uh, it was just silence. And the thing stopped about 5,000 feet over our heads and it was big, it filled that area. Uh, that plateau that we were on top of, uh, I have a, a drawing of it that I made contemporaneous with the event on uh, terrylovelace.com. And the, uh, with this thing over our head, long and short of it is we went, to, we went to bed. We just went to bed. There was no discussion. There was no talk about what is this thing. We just, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And I didn't bother to take off my boots, my shirt or anything. Um, I went in and I just fell on that air mattress and I was, I was out. Uh, and they took us sometime between probably around 9.30. And they took you. you. You say they took you? Who is they? they? Both of us. Who is they? They is the people in the, uh, pardon me, they refers to the entities in the triangular thing that was over our heads. What, they, what did they look like? There were, I saw three different types of entities. I saw little gray guys that, um, I, I don't think these little gray guys are living and sentient in the way that you and I are. I don't, I think they're more like, uh, Calvin Parker said they were like little robots. I think that's probably a good, uh, good observation. And I saw a six foot tall pink, pinkish, uh, skin color, uh, man dressed in like a gray uniform. I didn't see any insignia of rank. It had a V-neck, I remember that, uh, walking across our field of vision. And he carried himself like somebody in charge. We were Let me, both... interrupt, you. Let me interrupt you here because I'm going to have to take a break. So yeah, we've sure. got, you, you've described two of the entities you saw. We'll get to the third one when we come back. And you say your website is uh, Terry terrylovelace.com. Okay, so if you want to see the illustrations, you can take a look at terrylovelace.com, and I'll have additional information up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, I did a book called Conversations. It deals with some of the things we'll get into maybe a little later that deals with a bit of a possible beginning as an abduction, but uh, morphed into a past life regression. So we'll take a look at that or maybe get a chance to take a look at that in a minute. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. 
Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Welcome back. I am here with Terry Loveless. And those of you who are watching can see we're not wearing masks. We're not. But we are socially distanced for those of you who care about those sorts of things in this, this environment. When we went away, we were talking about, um, obviously an abduction situation here involving Terry Loveless and his friend, Toby. You had described two of the creatures, the aliens, the beings that you saw, and I interrupted you when you were about to get to the third. So let's yeah, go to the yeah. third. <laughs> Just real quick, I mean, uh, so people understand this. When I woke up, um, became conscious. I don't know what time it was. Both of our watches stopped. They were mechanical wind-up watches. But I was I was nude and I had all of my clothing in my arm along with my, my, my combat boots I wore. I had everything in my arms like this. And my friend was similarly situated right next to me. And I don't know, I don't know how they do this. I don't know if they took us to another location, but the thing that we were in was bigger than the thing that we saw from the outside. Kind of like uh, the TARDIS. Like what? The TARDIS. Doctor Who's uh, police call box that uh, oh, you look yeah. at. You yeah, go inside, it's much, much larger than the police call box. Yeah, but you know, from the outside, this thing looked like the size of a Walmart. From the inside, it was like an NFL stadium. Oh, well, there you go. The TARDIS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what happened while you were on board or wherever you were? Well, wherever I was. Yeah. I, and, you know, I want, I want to be clear. I don't have a clear linear memory of what happened to us. I have, you know, bits and pieces. Um, and that's all I have. Well, so. let me let me change. Let me alter the conversation here, because you inspired a book that I did called UFOs in the Deep State. Um, Originally, it was going to be called uh, UFOs and the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, UFOs and AFOSI, because of your experiences with the OSI. It morphed into the deep state conversation as well. And there's a this segment in the book that talks about your experiences um, about that. So once the event was over, and we kind of glossed over that, uh, but people can find your book or, and read about it on, on, your, on your website, but you then found yourself in the clutches of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation? I did. Uh, we both did. <clears throat> and uh, we, were, we were separated, which Robert Hastings told me it was very common when you had two people have uh, an experience like we had. I mean, something a little more intimate than just seeing a saucer dart across the sky, um, that it was very common to, to break them up. And send them to different locations. And they uh, cut Toby orders for Japan at like at light speed, I mean weeks. And uh, and he was gone. So and we were we were ordered to have no contact. So you know it's a it's a standard no contact order. No, you know, you can't call, you can't uh, communicate through third parties. If you know if I'm in a base exchange and he comes around a corner, I'm gonna turn around and walk away. Um, I didn't understand the reason for that, but uh, but that's what they did. And uh, but weren't you subjected to hypnotic and chemical regressions by the by somebody? I, I was, I was. Um, they came to visit me in my hotel. Pardon me, my hospital room. Uh, I spent uh, three days, two nights in the hospital. I had like flash burns to my eyes and some uh, burns on my skin. And uh, these two guys came in, in in blue business suits. And I mean, I could, I could tell they were cops. I mean, I had not had a lot of interaction with law enforcement. I was 22, naive. I didn't have a lot of world experience. Um, and this guy came in and uh, wanted to know what we were doing down there. That we left, we left our campsite intact. We just got in my car and left. So we left Toby's backpack, his cooler, uh, my tent, you know, everything that we brought with us, I, I took my wallet, my car case, that was it. So I think the, the park rangers found that campsite the next day and somehow figured out Toby had his address written inside that uh, backpack. So, I'm, and that's speculation on my part, but that's how I think they found this. 
But this guy um, did kind of a harsh interrogation with me. And, uh, you know, and in retrospect, having had some experience with law enforcement, I think it was all theater. Um, but when he left my room, he said to me in a whisper, he said, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something down there. And I think you know what I mean. Now, Toby and I had made a pact not to, not to tell anybody we saw a UFO the size of a Walmart because that would have led to a psyche valve and, and maybe, uh, maybe bad circumstances. You know, I wanted to just finish my enlistment like he did, get out, get my GI Bill in place, go to school. That was my goal. So we agreed not, not to talk about the UFO. So I was an amateur photographer. I had a reputation as one. And he said, the reason I bring this up is what struck me was your connection with the interrogations. And I'm thinking back to Rendlesham Forest with John Burroughs and Jim Pettiston and the people who were involved in that incident in, at Bentwaters in 19, uh, 1980, December of 1980. And it was clear that they were interrogated by somebody. Um, Charles Halt suggested it was the OSI simply because they went to the OSI building for their interrogations. As but, I did. And, and um, Halt said they, they interrogated everybody involved in that with the exception of him because he was a senior officer and knew the head of the OSI. I suspect he was interrogated and doesn't remember it because I can't see them leaving anybody out regardless of their seniority. Yeah. the way they normally operated. So you went to the interrogation at the OSI building as well. Is that what you? I, I did. I did. The guy, the guy talked to me in my, in my uh, hospital room, said, uh, you know, I just want to know how many pictures you took of it. Uh, and I, I didn't know how to answer him. Uh, but he knew from our conversation, I knew that he knew. And it was some weeks after that, that I got the call. Actually, the uh, squadron commander got a call. Uh, and I was put on notice that the OSI was going to send a car for me and I could, you know, they'd be right outside the front door. So I, uh, you know, I had no idea that this was going to happen. You know, I, I, I went out, the car was there. The guy drove me to the OSI building and uh, parked the car, escorted me inside. And there was a long hallway with uh, little interrogation room, rooms on the right and on the left. And I think they were designated alphabetically. And I was at the very end and on the right. And it was a small room, about the size of my guest bed, bathroom, big enough for a little table, some chairs, you know, a mirror that was, uh, you know, all dressed into the wall. Uh, I'm sure it was some kind of two-way thing. I wanted to go over and look, but I didn't have the nerve to do that. And I waited there about three hours uh, before somebody came in. And it was the two agents that came in and saw me at the hotel. Hospital. And, uh, What's that? The hospital, not the hotel. The hospital, yes, darn it. Thank you. Yeah, the <laughs> hospital. Uh, those two guys, and then they had um, this hypnotist. They had a guy, he had oak leaves on his collar, and he walked in, and he carried himself more like a, a therapist or a preacher or something than he did a military officer. And he's like, Sergeant Lovelace, it's so nice to meet you. You know, he shakes my hand and sits down and starts talking to me and you know he says so you're from st louis i'm like yeah he starts rattling off some landmarks and i'm like yeah and realize i'm getting comfortable with this guy and then uh, i didn't like that i pulled back from that i think he recognized that and then they got down to business and he took me through a hypnotic regression which i'm familiar with i'm i'm you know a qualified hypnotherapist so i i, I recognize those things and took me, you know, down the stairwell and took me, you know, but you know what, I was bound to determine that he would not hypnotize me. I knew I could resist the hypnosis. And I was, you know, doing multiplication in my head, uh, running through the multiplication table, uh, lyrics to uh, Beatles songs, anything I could think of not to give this guy my full attention. Um, but I had no control over the sodium mannitol, which is a short-acting hypnotic. Uh, and I'm told that they handed this out pretty liberally back in the 70s. Well, according to the guys from Rendlesham Forest, they were 
subjected to both chemical and hypnotic regressions. You gather the information and you're saying, you did not participate in the hypnotic regression, apparently. And we're well, you know, to, uh, to avoid it? I, I tried to avoid it. I think I avoided it, but you know, how do you know? <laughs> really, how do, how do you know? I, I don't think I was hypnotized, but you know, I couldn't resist the drug. The drug took me to a weird place. Um, and really the whole object of this exercise was to determine if I had a 36 exposure roll of film of this thing. God, I wish I had, <laughs> but I, I didn't. And that's another unusual thing. Neither one of us thought to take a picture of this thing. I mean, you know how somebody is who's, you know, who has a hobby of photography, they're, they're to the point of being annoying by taking pictures of everything. Never crossed my mind. My friend Toby had a camera within a foot of him that he could have picked up. Never crossed our minds. So, well, obviously if you'd taken pictures, you'd no longer have the pictures anyway. That's true. That's true. Well, you, and I think your military career took a divergent uh, path at that point. Uh, you know, not so much. Um, well, I, I, I was getting to a setup for the next segment because I'm going to have to take a break. Ah. <laughs> is where I was going with that, which, yeah. which we will explore when we come back here. Uh, the divergent path that uh, he may or may not have taken. When we come back, I'm going to be talking to Terry about his divergent path in the military or the alleged divergent path of the military. I'll have more information about this at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. His website, of course, is terrylovelace.com. So you can pick up his, uh, I guess, his perceptions of what was going on a little more in depth than what we've, we've talked through here. And of course, there's his book, Incident at Devil's Den. By a strange coincidence, my latest book is called um, Understanding Roswell. For a minute there, I forgot the name of the book. I believe it's now available through, um, through Amazon. It was uh, due out here any, any time now. The book prior to that was Level Land, which deals with the November of 1957 sightings where a number of people at various locations around the Leveland, Texas area reported their cars were stalled. Uh, the engines, well, the engine stalled, the lights went out, independently reporting to the sheriff. And there's good information that the sheriff not only got out in time to see the object that his car was also influenced by that. And all that's laid out in the book about Leveland and uh, what's called electromagnetic effects starting, uh, I, I mentioned early on, the 1909 EM effect of a motorcycle in England, moving up until the 2021 20, era with uh, animals being um, influenced by the electromagnetic effects and, and that sort of thing. So it's, a, it's an interesting book dealing with multiple chains of evidence and interactions with the environment by the UFOs. So anyhow, when we come back, I'll be talking to Terry Lovelace. We're going to be talking about um, the end of his military career and what, he, what he's interested in now, which moves beyond not only UFOs and alien abduction, but into past lives. And we'll get into some of that as well. So we will be back right after this. So please stick around. And welcome back. Terry Loveless has not gotten angry and stomped out of the room, but then again, neither have I. So we're both here. When we went away, we were talking about the um, his military career and how it how it ended. And I know there's an aspect of it. You say you were an EMT in the Air Force at the time that this event took place? Yes, I was trained as a medic. And uh, then when I got to my duty station at Whiteman, I got certified as an EMT and drove an ambulance. And after this event, uh, were you still an EMT? What happened after this? Uh, well, after this event, I got back to the hospital and uh, where I worked. You know, and I had some injuries, um, not bad. I had a little time off um, and I healed. Um, and then I had this hypnosis session with the OSI. And that was, that was kind of traumatic in that uh, I don't think I was hypnotized, but I think I was under the influence of the sodium amytal because I, I was able to see things that I didn't consciously remember. So it did enhance my memory somewhat. Uh, like, I get, like I said, never a clear linear memory of what happened, but enough bits and pieces. But the object of the exercise was they wanted to make very sure I hadn't taken photographs of it and had some film hidden somewhere. 
And of course, that was easy because I, I didn't. So uh, after you've met with the OSI, did you go back to your job as an EMT at the hospital or did it go in a different direction? No, I, I was able to go back to duty. They were, they were happy to have me, you know? So, okay. uh, and then you finished out your military career. I did. I did. And uh, was very satisfied with it. I, you know, I enjoyed my time in the Air Force. It's what, not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to law school. So that was the plan from day one. And the GI Bill helped. Oh my gosh, did it ever. <laughs> Shame they didn't have anything for grad school. That came out of my pocket. Well, that was kind of kind of my career path as well. Out of high school, I went into the army looking for the GI Bill. But uh, I, I was trained as a helicopter pilot. Yes. And that was in 1967. So you can imagine where I went immediately upon graduation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I think everybody knows now, so I don't need to go into that. So you got out of the military, you went to law school, um, you practice as an attorney, and now you've come back to your UFO interest at some point. You wrote your book, Incident at Devil's Den. Yeah, I'll tell you what happened is uh, in 2012, I, I retired from the state of Vermont, and we moved to Dallas where we have adult kids and grandkids. And I, I had terrible knee pain one day about... Uh, I left Vermont uh, January of 2012 and then landed here. And I get my care from the VA because uh, I got a service-connected disability, long story. But um, tinnitus and uh, low back pain from improper lifting of a patient. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So uh, I get all my care at the VA. And uh, I told my wife, I said, something's wrong with my knee, take me to the hospital. And she did. And I saw a PA there and she's like, okay. And wheeled me into the uh, x-ray room and had the tech take a couple pictures. And the tech is confused. And she takes a couple more and she asked me, have you been in some kind of accident? Something that could account for a piece of metal in your leg? I said, no, I've never had any injury to that leg other than a skinned knee. Um, and they found on x-ray a square structure with two wires attached to it above my knee and below my knee, there's a collection of bones in a, in a floret pattern. Um, and th those x-rays are on terrylovelace.com if anyone would like to see them. Um, that, when I saw that, that validated that what happened happened and that at some point these things had to put their hands on me. And that was just really hard for me to process. Um, so I went back, I wrestled with it for a couple of years and then finally decided, well, I'm gonna write a book about this. And fortunately I made copious notes because when the OSI got involved, I thought it would be good to have, you know, a chronology of events, everything that happened. Uh, and I made two, one with the UFO and then one without the UFO. And I saved both of those notebooks, spiral ring notebooks. That was a huge help to write the book. Which details all of this much in, in greater depth than we've gone into here. Yes. But that kind of, so you, you wrote a book about that and that inspired you to look deeper into the UFO phenomenon, the abduction phenomenon? Yeah, because I'd always been, uh, I, I always shied away from it. Uh, you know, it disturbed my sleep and uh, I, I've never been a fan of science fiction. Um, so I just, I just never never got into it, but that spurned an interest. And then uh, 2018, I had to, had to try to catch up and find out uh, everything I could about this UFO community, uh, which is interesting. Bunch of nice people, mostly. Well, you, did that inspire you to take the courses in hypnotic uh, regression and that sort of thing? Uh, well, you know what, what did that was I, I wrote a second book called Devil's Den, The Reckoning. And uh, in it, I've got 30, um, I've received like 2,200 emails uh, since I wrote Devil's Den from folks. The, my address is in the back, terrylovelace at yahoo.com if anyone wants to reach me. Um, 
But I got emails from people who said they wanted, they were interested in hypnotic regression. Could I refer them to somebody? And I sure, you know, Yvonne Smith in LA, if you're on the East Coast, uh, um, Kathleen, uh, Martin. Kathleen Martin. And, uh, and then I started thinking, you know what? I think that would be interesting to do. And uh, so there's a, there's a uh, accredited school in Seattle. Uh, I went there, went through their classes and, uh, you know, got my certificate and uh, have been doing, you know, weight loss, smoking secession for people uh, here and there. But my real interest is past life regression. And uh, I had some amazing results with that. I, I was on the typical me, skeptic. Me, before we get to that, let me, let me make sure. Your, was your undergraduate degree, did you say, in psychology? It was, yes. How did, and, and that translated to, to graduate school in, uh, graduate law school? Well, no, the, uh, law school, to get into law school, all you need is a, a bachelor's degree and a score on the LSAT. Okay. So that's, that's the only two things they look for. There's no GRE, but the LSAT, the Law School Admissions Test, is far worse than, than the uh, GRE. Uh, the, the reason I bring that up is I remember the scene from Animal House where the one, one kid says, I'm, I'm pre-law, and the other one says, I, I thought you were pre-med. And he says, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. That's sort of what you're saying there. What's the difference? You've got a good score on the, on the law exam, and uh, we're able to get into law school. Yeah. But you have a, do you have some training in psychology, which I think puts you ahead of some people who are doing past past life regressions and hypnotic regressions in the UFO field because they don't have a, a background in psychology. Yeah, well, that's always been of interest to me. And I actually did. Uh, I had a anesthesiologist teach me hypnosis back in the 70s uh, because when we were picking up accident victims, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to get morphine then. Uh, and he taught me some steps to make to make people you know relax, stop you know stop the pain so they could or calm down, and uh, stuff works. And it impressed me. And you know I used it in my legal career uh, for witness uh, enhanced witness memory or victims memory. Uh, I found it a very helpful tool. So, but I, I wanted to get I wanted to get certified and get get blessed. Uh, as a hypnotherapist. And how did you, how did you divert into past life regressions from UFO abductions? How did you end up there? Well, you know, during this class, um, on the syllabus, they, they had a section about past life regression. And uh, the uh, lady that had been doing hypnosis for 35 years, uh, and she was a clinical psychologist as well, and she said, if you do this long enough, you're going to have somebody pop up with a, with a past life memory. And she said, now, I'm, not, I'm not making any claims that that's, that event is true or false, but it's true to the person that's, that's giving you the details. Uh, and uh, I met a, uh, a lady, her name is Fiona Harris, and uh, she's been doing hypnotherapy for like 30 years. And uh, she does past life regression. And uh, she taught me her technique to do that. And it's basically regressing somebody uh, to a baby, then back into the womb, and then, you know, go deeper and deeper, back farther and farther. And then uh, sometimes nothing happens. You know, I don't remember anything. Most times they remember being in the womb. But I had, uh, I was a typical skeptic with uh, Robert Khalil and uh, did a session for him. And he recalled a past life. Uh, as did Christopher Jordan, who has a channel too. Uh, it used to be called Dudes and Beer. <laughs> but, um, and he had, he had an amazing experience and uh, very emotional for him. He was crying and, and uh, it, was, it was very detailed. Um, well, let's let's stop there. And when we come back, we'll get a little bit deeper into this past life regression. Because I did a book called Conversations, which I mentioned earlier, that started out as an investigation of an alien abduction. And we inadvertently went back into a past life regression that was very, very segmented and over a long period of time. 
it was was very frightening about what was going on. So we can maybe take a look at that. Book's never done very well, but I, it's kind of if even if you treat it as fiction, it's a good story. If, if for no other reason, I, you know, this is something we worked with. Um, the website is terrylovelace.com. The blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and we will be back right after this with Terry Lovelace. And welcome back. I am still here with Larry. Larry, <laughs> sorry, Terry. Terry Lovelace. Little spoonerism going on there for those of you who keep track of these sorts of things. Uh, we were moving into the realm of past life regressions, and you were talking about your interest in in doing that. Is there uh, a specific case where it was a very interesting past life that you could maybe get some kind of corroborative detail from? Uh, by searching old records and things like that, or is it just more of the testimony under hypnosis? You know, the uh, I have yet to take anybody back that was, you know, Julius Caesar or, you know, uh, somebody of notoriety. Um, this uh, one gentleman that I did uh, remembered being in what he thought might be France or Belgium, and he speaks French. Um, and uh, he was a farmhand and he, and he described his life as a farmhand and he couldn't read or write, he was illiterate. And uh, he, uh, I asked him, how, how, why, how can you speak English? If you, shouldn't you speak French? Can you still speak French? And he says, no, that's what I spoke in my past life. He says, in this, in this life, I speak English. So, but it, it, was, it was a fascinating story with a lot of detail. Uh, you run into any soldiers or um... not a soldier yet um, I've regressed probably about half a dozen people is all um, and we've we've gone through that past life to the point of their death and revisited their death which can be very emotional for people well yes I would imagine so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know Nobody died in a dramatic way. Everyone died of old age or disease or something and family was around them. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's another point. That's another area that interests me is if we have past lives, what's in the middle? What's in between? I'd like to know that. You have any answer for that? You know, I, I, I don't. Um, you know, there was a guy, guy named uh, James Leininger who wrote a book called Soul Survivor. I bet you may have heard of it, published about 2009 uh, about a kid that recalled flying a Corsair off of a um, carrier deck in, um, in a past life and being shot down and killed. And when he was a little kid, I know his dad, he's in Louisiana, not, not all that far away, Bruce Leininger. And uh, James was his son and took him to the... Uh, uh, Dallas uh, Museum where they had a Corsair. And he's it's like four years old. He runs over and says, the antenna's wrong. There should be this, there should be that. And he's walking around the plane, touching it. And the dad's like, you know, to the docent or whatever they call these guys that get, you know, at the uh, museum. He says, he's doing a pre-flight check. And, um, Wrote, wrote a heck of, heck of a good book and was able to verify. Um, his name was James. Um, he had a sister in Kansas. And the sister in Kansas believes this is her brother. I mean, she's 90 years old now, but she, she believes that. He knew details. He knew the name of the carrier, which was the Nakoma. And Bruce thought, oh, that sounds Japanese. Well, to me, it sounds Native American. Uh, and it was the Nicola, and it was it is a Native American word. So uh, Bruce assembled a binder like this thick of um, corroborating evidence, and uh, just an amazing story. The book is called Soul Survivor. Um, so that, that that's an amazing. I've not had anything as dramatic as that happen yet. Uh, when you're doing a the the room. Russians with um, abductees. This is this is what tripped 
my friend and me up. He was the one doing the hypnosis because I don't know how to operate the hypnosis. I didn't want to get involved in the hypnosis. We were very careful what we did and how we passed questions back and forth between us. So we didn't cue the um, subject about what we were going and what we were looking for. And we inadvertently ended up in a back life or a past life. But you have not had anything like that happen to you. She thought she thought she had been abducted, I guess, is the deal. And then her friends were telling her that she had been abducted and she needed to research that. And it turned out she was not abducted. It was a past life that was kind of bleeding over into this life and causing her some uh, emotional trauma, some aggravation in this life. And we were able to to alleviate that simply by uh, the discussions with yeah. her later on. And uh, uh, once we were done with the investigation, we gave all the information to her that we had and so she could deal with it the way she wanted to. Did you want to know more about this? Here's, here's what we found. Here's what you said. And here's our corroborative information. Perfect. But we didn't, um, we didn't do much with it. So I, I, like I said, I did the book um, Conversations, which explains in detail how we ended up in, in, that, in that story. But I've, I, I've struggled with it simply because when you're dealing with something like that, it just seems so unbelievable. And there are so many avenues that you can go down that takes you in the wrong direction away from the, from the evidence. So I, you know, it's why I always hesitate with the book, you know, this is what we discovered um, without embellishment. And yet it's an unbelievable book, but it's a good story as well. It's not just this, um, evidence for her past life but it, if if you will remove that element of it and say well this is just some kind of a science fiction or fantasy or horror novel i think it's a good book in that realm as well but this is what came out of these discussions with this with this woman that we had uh what was it uh, nearly 30 years ago yeah well i'll, I'll certainly read it I'm looking forward to it she um the thing was, she would give us details of these past lives, and then we would have to end up at the university libraries trying to check on the stuff. In today's environment, you'd say, well, she just went on the internet and looked the stuff up and regurgitated that. But at that time frame, you couldn't do that. It was a much more difficult task to gather the intimate knowledge. I mean, we have the entire knowledge of the human race at our fingertips, <laughs> With, uh, with the internet and that sort of thing. So it would be very easy to create this scenario in today's environment. But back then it wasn't nearly as easy to create that kind of a scenario with the kind of detail you'd expect. Uh, you're familiar with Bridie Murphy. Did you look into oh, that? Oh yes, I know the story. Okay. So you understand what I'm saying here because that's what they did with Bridie Murphy. And then there was a, an attempt to smear that information by the, I think the Catholic diocese in Chicago was, was annoyed with uh, her telling this past life regression, suggesting reincarnation. Yeah, yeah, and that's not part of church doctrine, so. Well, but, uh, for those of you, Bridie Murphy was this woman living in Colorado and at a party, they were doing hypnotic regressions and they inadvertently got her back to uh, being an Irish woman in the, mid 19th century, I think it was talking about her life in Ireland, and her name had been Bridie Murphy and this sort of thing. And uh, it was a best selling book about her uh, that came out in that in that time frame as well. And then there was a lot of attempts to discredit the book by various individuals, I think some of it driven, driven by their religious beliefs, and uh, some of it just finding the story incredulous. So they didn't want to believe it, and were looking for anything to discredit it. Yeah, she spoke Gaelic, Gaelic in, uh, in, in one of the sessions. And uh, they had a linguist there who knew the language and said that she did it flawlessly. And some of the things she talked about that they could check on and say, well, you know, the green grocer she talked about uh, in, in Ireland, well, it was some that was close to correct in that. And how would she have known that information? Today, you could look that up. But back in the 1950s, I think this was, you couldn't possibly look that stuff up until she had intimate knowledge of that area of Ireland that she couldn't possibly have had based on the timing, I guess. It's a compelling story. Yes, yes. Uh, we're just about out of time here, I see, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I think I diverted the conversation a little bit away from where I wanted to go with it, but 
these things happen. Um, are you doing a book on the past life regression information? I am. I am. I'm starting to assemble stuff and uh, I've got a long way to go yet. Um, <laughs> so the original book is Incident at Devil's Den. Yes. The follow-up book is? Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Okay. And they're both on Amazon. And um, that's... That's all of it. I know in the in the Devil's Dan book, I think there's pictures of the x-rays as well. There are pictures in the back, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I did an audio book for both too. So if, if you like to listen to audio books, uh, you can pick up that on Audible or, or Amazon, either one. And your website is? TerryLovelace.com. And what all, there's contact information there for you if uh, people want to get in touch. Sure, very easy. My email address is terrylovelace.com. Write to me, I answer everybody. <laughs> You're better than I am. <laughs> I, I ignore a lot of people, but I have a, I have a good reason for that, people. That's, that's why I do that. Terry, thank you so much for taking time out to chat with us about uh, your experiences, both as an abductee, I guess, and, uh, and an Air Force veteran. And, uh, and now a researcher into past life regressions and alien abductions. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to see you again. <laughs> even, even this way, I guess. Um, next week, I may be flying solo. I haven't decided yet. Coming up in the um, very near future, next the week after that, will be John Greenwald talking about what he's learned in the Black Vault uh, about um, the current disclosure nonsense and UAPs and all of that sort of thing. There's some interesting stuff there. And I'll have something on my blog, a little bit on my blog about uh, the latest uh, report about the UAPs. Following that, we're going to have David Marler on talking about triangular UFOs again, but also the QFOS project dealing with scanning an awful lot of material so that it'll be available to researchers and those interested in UFOs uh, online, working with um, Chris, Chris uh, Klaus Sven that we talked to, to just a few weeks ago. So take a look at that as well. As I say, I'll be back in 176 hours with uh, more information about UFOs and maybe past life regressions, who knows? Thank you for tuning in.